Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Invisible Tears. I'm here today with Amanda and Drew, and I am Jane. Hi, guys. How's it going? Doing good. Doing good. How are you guys doing? I wish I was doing better. Mm, I know. <laughs> I'm getting over pneumonia again. Gosh darn it. I'm just, um, there's been so many people sick and stuff, and I thought I was going to escape it and i didn't yeah so i am um i am fighting pneumonia right now but i am much better than i was a week or two ago so Mm -hmm. i'm happy to be here with you guys Mm -hmm. Uh, it's been a while since we've done the episode i know thanks for being here jane especially with still being sick but glad that you are feeling better and that you are on the mend i am it's just old age no, I don't know. I don't know what to chalk it up on. I I don't know. I go and get blood work and everything done, and everything looks great, and da 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 da. And I just don't understand it. But yeah, it is what it is. It is what it is. You know, yeah. I think I am around a lot of people that have made some real serious life choices with their health, um, whether it be. Um, get more physical, jogging, running, which honestly, that has never appealed to me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) If you see me running, (laughs) you better be running too, because something is chasing me. Um, (laughs) I'm the same way. And eating habits, which, I mean, I don't have terrible eating habits, but I do not have the best of eating habits. And past few years I have gained an enormous amount of weight and I think it has a lot to do with you know not that I'm lazy but like I'm in the car a lot I'm driving a lot I'm sitting a lot um I'm not as physical as I should be and I really need to start getting more physical so next week I think it's next week I I did make an appointment with a nutritionist and I go and see her next week. And maybe that will be the beginning of doing some life changing mm-hmm. with my uh, health habits. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping she'll help me. Yeah. Um, because I just, uh, I'm not lazy. I'm always on the go. It's not like I sit every night and eat a bag of chips, which mm-hmm. I do not. Um, I'm I'm not. I don't eat a shitload of ice cream or anything like that. Sometimes we get busy, and I'll, I'll admit we eat a little bit more processed foods than what we should. Mm-hmm. And they say processed foods are the worst for you. So um, hopefully, I can get some advice and encouragement and uh, start doing some. Um, Paying attention to my health and my mm-hmm. and my um, eating habits a little bit better, so we'll mm-hmm. see what happens. Yeah. Maybe I'll be sharing a lot more about that down the road and and seeing results and feeling better. And mm-hmm. we'll see, we'll see what happens. But yeah. I know there's a ton of people in my life right now that in the past two years have made an enormous amount of uh, changes in the their lifestyle. They're exercising and they're eating habits. And um, 
they feel a lot better. They look great. I'm so jealous. And uh, uh, we'll see. Maybe I can jump on that bandwagon with them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But so um yeah, we're gonna be doing uh we're talking about Sarah Hunter. Why don't you guys take it yeah. take it first? Yeah, sure. So Sarah Hunter, she was a golf pro, like you said, Jane, um, at the Manchester Country Club in Manchester, Vermont. And the last time that she was seen alive was September 18th of 1986. Uh, fairly shortly after she uh, was last seen, um, her vehicle was found and she was not in it. Um, her remains ended up being found actually on Thanksgiving Day, 1986, by a hunter in the woods in Paulette, Vermont. Um, basically just pulling off of the cold case um, or unsolved uh, website for the state of Vermont. It just says that evidence identified at the scene and during the autopsy and during the investigation support the classification of this case as being a homicide. Um, and technically, this case still remains unsolved. Jane, I know you found some interesting information on Sarah in life. Did you want to um, share that? Yeah, I did. Um really couldn't find an obituary, but I yeah. did find that um, I did find that she um, she was born in Greenville, Pennsylvania. She was a member of the Ladies Professional Golf Association. She was the daughter of a doctor and had two sisters and two brothers. She graduated from Wilson College in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. She spent her summers in Florida working on the, on the staff of the Ben Sutton Florida Golf School in Sun City Center. She grew up playing golf at a country club and learned to love and respect the game there. She believed golf courses were places to teach children about life, how to behave around adults, and how to learn and enjoy competition. It was very obvious that she loved to teach the kids golf. That was her favorite part of what she did for a living. She was very much respected. Um, she was very much respected in the sport mm -hmm. um, because Back in the 80s, there wasn't a whole lot of women being recognized as professional golf players. Mm -hmm. It was uh, back in the 80s was mostly um, men. So she she really um, was highly recognized for her female role as a professional golf, um, golf player. Mm -hmm. Now, I got all this from... Um, We'll have to put it in our notes. The Carl Tone film. Yeah, the, the there was a short independent documentary made about this case, and the title of it was Overtaken by Darkness. Um, it's yeah, actually exactly. out on YouTube as well. But yeah, Carl Tone Films is who actually um, put it out. So that's pretty much um, what I found about her personal life. Yeah. There were a lot of articles that were written, I mean, obviously about um, the 
a lot sort of happened with her case. Um, but in most all of the articles uh, really outlined that everyone said, you know, everyone loved her. She was extremely outgoing. She loved working with the youth and specifically at the golf course where she was employed. She developed the youth programs there. And actually, there's a uh, memorial golf tournament that's played in her name every year. Yep. And that's played up in Manchester, Vermont, where she had um, gone missing and where she was at the time of her death. And it's, I guess it's a pretty big tournament. Over 136 players, golf players, uh, showed up, I believe, the last tournament that they had. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, it's a pretty big tournament that they have every year in her memory. Yeah. She was 32 uh, when she went missing, which they call it an abduction. Mm -hmm. um, so she was abducted, and then they we know that she was murdered. There had been evidence that she was uh, raped, mm -hmm. sexually assaulted. Yep. Um, I, and I, I believe that's where the, the DNA came in. Mm -hmm. Um, the case went cold for years. Uh, they did have a suspect. And then in, what was it? 2012. Um, so she, she went missing. They found her car the next day at a store where the suspect Morrison what was his full name? So his full name was David Allen Morrison. David Allen Morrison had worked that night at that store. And um, that's where her car was found the next day. So he was he was questioned. He was a suspect. And then they found her. A hunter found her body. It was interesting. I had read that when they found her body, she was naked. She, she, she did not have any clothes on, mm -hmm. but her clothes were folded very neatly beside her. I had read um, where they found her body. Yeah. Now, whether he folded her clothes and put them there or he forced, they believe that he forced her mm -hmm. to fold her clothes and put them there whether it was a, um, you know, his way of degrading her as a woman mm -hmm. or whatever. But the community where she was found was fairly small, 3,200 residents. It, it was Manchester, Vermont. Uh, that's between Bennington and Rutland, Vermont. The area reflected the family's atmosphere, um, which was more of a public uh, the family's atmosphere of the Manchester Country Club, which was more of a public club than a prestigious private club. Um, she, um, she sported a smile there every day and a welcoming presence when players arrived at, at the pro shop, which I believe she worked in the pro shop as well. It was it was a eight o'clock lesson that she missed when they decided to call the cops and report her missing. They said it was a complicated murder case. It was filled with suspects, twists, turns. Um, she was married, but I believe she was. They were going to be divorced. Mm -hmm. 
she got work at different golf courses. Um, her husband had moved out of the area. Uh, she returned back to Manchester, Vermont um, as the new head pro. Uh, she had a boyfriend, John Hand. Um, she hung out with um, a Mr. Macin a Mr. Macintosh and his wife and many of the men and women who played at the Manchester Club. So this um, filmmaker, Dwayne Carlton, he decided to do this uh, um, film, Overtaken by Darkness, which is a documentary um, to remember Sarah and shed light on the investigation. Um, he researched the case for seven years. And then there was a hint of closure for the case in 2014, when 28 years later, Sarah was again headlined across Vermont. And why don't you take it from there? Because then that really describes who they arrested, uh, what their leads were, why they arrested him, where he is now, and so on. So throughout the investigation, there were actually multiple people um, that were that were interviewed and were her best friend was, her boyfriend, her ex-boyfriend. And it seems as if most all alibis checked out and that sort of thing. So the investigation actually um, led into getting uh, John Philbin as a criminal profiler to come and um, speak about the case as well. Um, so that was interesting to see Philbin's name. But given the area where it was, I I wasn't um, I wasn't actually surprised that Philbin was consulted um, on investigating with the case. What happened in the 2014 was that David Allen Morrison was actually, he actually ended up being charged with Sarah Hunter's murder. And he was charged because of evidence that was actually collected. But as we said earlier, it's still an unsolved murder. So while David Allen Morrison had always actually been a person of interest in the initial investigation because of where he lived, um, no sort of evidence could actually tie him or directly tie him um, to the investigation. So David Allen Morrison actually ended up moving to California. Well, while out in California, he was actually arrested and charged with the kidnapping in the Tula Vista, California case. And that was in 1988. Mm -hmm. yep. That was a sexual assault and kidnapping case and attempted murder. And after he was picked up for that um, and was charged with that, so he started serving time out in California. Once that uh, occurred and um, once he was actually in custody and charged with that out in California, investigators found out that he had actually left his 1968 Chevy Impala with a friend back in Arlington and it was vacuumed for evidence. So that's how police were able to obtain the evidence. The police said that they collected strands uh, from the vehicle and 20 years later were able to actually compare them to DNA from uh, Sarah Hunter's sister, confirming that those strands actually belonged to her. So the charges then um, are brought onto David Morrison. Um, now, mind you, he's incarcerated out in California 
he refuses to actually be extradited. I'm not sure how an inmate refuses to be extradited, but he did. And it took them two years to actually get him back out here. Um, unfortunately, once they brought charges against him, it was found out that there was a mistake with handling evidence. And the evidence that they had collected and vacuumed out of his car was actually evidence that was collected out of Sarah's car. So the evidence that they had linking him with the killing of Sarah Hunter, uh, they believed was collected out of his car, when in fact it was not. It, Sarah's own hair was vacuumed out of her own car. And so charges ended up being dropped. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now back to our episode. <laughs> All right. So this is what confuses me. Mm -hmm. She was murdered in 1986. Mm -hmm. When did they vacuum her car? I had not been able to find that. So if they vacuumed, I mean, was it a possibility they vacuumed her car back in the 80s or even the 90s? Right. And had held that evidence. All right, that would have been held in, in the evidence box there. Yep. At the, at the police station or wherever they held the evidence. Right. But then in what? 2012 is when they vacuumed Morrison's car. I'm reading something from an article that actually says the evidence that would lead to the murder charge against him was actually collected in 1988. 88. Right, right. So the confusing piece is, is that you, when you think about this case logically, when she was found and when her car was found, it was back in 1986. They also mentioned that when her car was found you couldn't open the doors or anything like that. So it was clear that it was actually pushed into the location where it was, right? You would think that her car would have been processed back in 86 too. Um, so all the vacuuming and, and whatever was processed from that scene would have taken place in 86. So in this article that I'm reading from the Manchester Journal, it does say that the evidence that would lead to him being charged with this was collected in 88 because by that time he had moved to California and caught charges for this other crime that he committed. Why the, why the delay? Why that, that baffles me. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. And I don't understand how they could confuse the evidence that they collected from her car with the evidence that they collected from his car when it was taken, what, two years apart. Right. How do they confuse that? Um, yeah, that confuses me. Now, he's serving 20 years to life in California right now. Yeah. So he is in jail. Yeah, the interesting thing with that, uh, from my perspective, is that David Morrison pled guilty 
to the charges in California and was sentenced to 20 years to life. So at that time, that would that would have been in 1989 was when he was arrested for those charges. So from that point through 2012, he had been incarcerated in California. However, when the charges were brought forward from Vermont, he pled not guilty to them. Why plead not guilty after you've already pled guilty to another crime and are in there? And it's not like you have to worry about you know capital punishment in Vermont. Death penalty was abolished in 1972, so there wasn't any fears there. The only difference would have been more time added on. So I do wonder if, you know, within that 12-year time period, did he did he grow accustomed to life in, you know, the West Coast serving his time? And did he not want to risk having to serve time on the East Coast? I don't know. But the fact that you, you know, plead guilty to one, but then plead not guilty to the same sort of charges does make me wonder if he truly is the the person. It is odd. It should be noted too. I mean, before he was actually charged with anything, there were accusations against him as well. So back in 1981, David Morrison, he was accused by two separate women of abduction and sexual assault, one of them happening in Bennington, Vermont, and the other happening in Lanesboro, Massachusetts. Both of the women told very similar stories of being picked up because they were hitchhiking along a road, um, being held at gunpoint, And then he allegedly forced them to perform sexual acts, drove them to a remote location where he raped them and then abandoned them. Now, again, as I say, these were just accusations. The charges in the Vermont case were dropped because the alleged victim apparently didn't pass a polygraph and he did. And the Massachusetts case was simply acquitted. So he was never charged with any of this. But again, so in, in setting a sort of like a precedence of like what, you know, he had been involved with or at least accused of. This was back in 1981, just hmm. as a heads up. Yeah. Now, Sarah's manner of death was strangulation, I believe. He strangled her. So, yes. yeah, why would he? He sexually assaulted those other women, but did not try to kill them. Mm-hmm. He just left them there. Mm-hmm. But yet Sarah was sexually assaulted and then strangled to death. Yeah. And then murdered. Yeah. It was, it was interesting to note, too, that, I mean, some of the uh, prosecution back over here in Vermont had said that what he was accused of was out on the West Coast, too, was so similar to looking at like what Sarah Hunter's case was. It really sounds as if the Vermont authorities, there's really no question in their minds that they did have the correct person, but not the actual evidence, um, like tangible evidence to be able to link that up. Now, if she was sexually assaulted, mm-hmm. you would think that they would have been able to find some kind of DNA unless mm-hmm. um, because she was she went missing September. September. She was found Thanksgiving. Right. So I guess it all depends on how decomposed or or the condition of her body. Right. Really wasn't able to find too much out there on the specifics about like what DNA, if any DNA or anything like that was found on her. The specific link between the hairs is what they zoned in on and focused on to try and actually um, charge him with the crime. 
Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So uh, to, to add more interesting pieces to it too, I mean, when I first started looking at this case, I actually first started looking at this case just simply because of the age, the area, and the time when it happened. Because I was like, oh, this is interesting just simply because of the, you know, all of those aspects. Could this be something that might be connected to something that we've, you know, we're looking into? Mm -hmm. um, that's the only reason why I actually started looking into this case. And then, and then once you see all the wealth of information um, out there on this case, it, it's more of like, a, wow, this is, this is a really intriguing case with, like you said, Jane, a lot of twists and turns and a lot of, hmm, at first, at first initial glance, I really thought that it sounded like the police had seriously only narrowed in on a singular person and they dubbed him for it. And then, you know what I mean? That like, it was almost like a, a pigeonholed or um, blinders on sort of sort of response um, to trying to, you know, peg it on this on this David Morrison person. And then when you dig a little bit deeper, you actually find out that, you know, how many people were actually interrogated and actually asked and that sort of thing. And then when you dig even deeper, you find out that John Philpin, uh, as a criminal profiler, did end up consulting on the case. Um, and he was actually featured and interviewed in that documentary that you were speaking about. Do you guys want to hear what his profile was that he I would love delivered. to hear what the profile was. All right. So again, so this is taken. So this is John Philpin's words taken right from that um, documentary, The Overtaken by Darkness. So he ended up delivering, John Philpin ended up delivering the profile to the Vermont State Police on October 1st, 1987. What I came up with, uh, so basically I started with... Um, with a sense of someone who was capable of uh, being methodical to a certain extent, um, who was trying to pay attention to detail, um, to, to take all the necessary steps, uh, not only to execute the crime, but to uh, make sure that he wouldn't be caught. What emerged to me was um, a, a guy whose fantasies probably were telling him that he was godlike, you know, a total success at, at what he was doing, um, that he was invulnerable, uh, that nobody was going to catch him. And this was probably how he perceived himself. But it also, uh, because of the, you know, the conflicting... Um, uh, risk-taking um, suggested to me someone who uh, that for whom that would have been a compensatory kind of thinking essentially somebody with a with a, uh, a lousy self-image uh, who, who acted as though he was confident and in control but who wasn't but what 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 is going on the entire time is is this conflict between um, his perceptions, uh, his fantasies about who he is and what he's capable of and how he's perceived and the realities um, and, and, the, and the, uh, the reality, of course, uh, uh, was um, supremely tested 
um, in, in, in the encounter with, uh, with Sarah Hunter, which it, it would not have been in, in, uh, in other encounters. He, he was extremely desirous of having people look up to him, respect him, uh, see him as, you know, a really neat guy. But that's not the way he felt about himself. And, and that, you know, came across pretty, pretty clearly, I think. The savagery involved in, in this assault also um, suggested uh, somebody with an extremely volatile temper, um, you know, one to, one to extremes, um, that he would uh, probably um, be always be at risk uh, to, to lose control. That he could be provoked to a point, uh, whether it would be by something he'd perceive, something he'd see, something that would come into his vision, uh, or by some sort of affront, or at least perceived affront, um, that he would be reacting to explosive uh, personality. And then pa the paranoid aspect of it is the other. Um, at the same time that you're seeing yourself as some sort of uh, walking perfection, and this is where I think the conflict comes in. There's this nagging sense that um, people are out to get you. Nothing is ever your fault. It's always somebody else's fault. Uh, that uh, you really have your act together, but these people are looking at you and judging you in some way. Um, and and it, uh, it becomes an extreme... Uh, extremely self-conscious kind of posture uh, for someone in the world. Um, a system like that uh, has, has a long life. It starts early on um, and, uh, and develops over time. Um, you'd look to uh, uh, family dynamics you know, to, to explain it. Um, I, I think that there were suggestions also that um, were included in the profile that in a family situation, he would be uh, much closer to a female, uh, to his mother or a sister or something like that, uh, than he would uh, to his father, to a male. Um, and and the, the way the essential formula works is that males are sources of competition and females can be manipulated. That would be part of the perception. That is interesting. Yeah. Um, a lot to unpack there. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. And now back to our episode. So if you take that profile and kind of compare it to what little, very, very little we know about Morrison, mm -hmm. um, a couple of things did catch me. Um, was Philip been talking about the attention to detail yeah. that this perpetrator or this killer would, would have. Morrison, though, he had gotten caught twice in 81, caught in 88, and then tied to this other one. So if he was very true to attention to detail, he fucking sucked at his job. That's the first <laughs> thing. Um, and yet, why why wouldn't he have had that mentality of attention to detail dating back to the cases, you know, back to 81? But also if he had this um, this idea, this grandiose view of himself of never being caught you know, I can do this and get away with it. What previously had happened, which those two cases in 81, why would he have that, that mentality 
after having already been caught for something? Did you think, okay, I've lived and learned. I'm going to do it right this time. But if that's the case, then he didn't do it right because both 86 and 88 he was tied to. Interestingly enough, when you go back to the 81 accusations, though, like even though he got caught, he didn't actually catch charges. So they were actually either dropped or acquitted. So would that give him the sense of, I got away with it? Being able to get away with it very well. Right. And then the other topic was on um, talking about his need for respect mm-hmm. from others around him. And maybe that is why he fought the extradition to to Vermont. He had been in the um, the prison system in California for 12 years. What possible respect had he might have built up and didn't want to start anew in in Vermont? Mm. Um, you know, maybe is that why he was fighting it so much and just did not want to leave. But then that does go back to the why plead guilty for one case and get a 20 years to life sentence. Um, and he was up for a parole in 2023. He was denied and he's not getting a next parole hearing until 2028. So if you kind of have that vision of it, hindsight being what it is, go back to 2012. Did he think that there was any chance in hell he was going to get out on parole? Because mm-hmm. if so, it's been, you know, 12 years later and it'll be actually 16 years later. Mm-hmm from the chance of actually getting another parole hearing. So I don't understand why, why plead not guilty in this case in particular. Yeah. That's the, that's the one hangup that I have. Now there could be much more to the story, you know, from Morrison's point of view or for the fact of what other evidence do they have? Right. See, that's what I wish Mm -hmm. that we could find. What other evidence do they have? Um, like his timeline, right? Uh, um, you know, I don't see anywhere where it shows what time he worked till that night, or mm-hmm. or you know, no details about his timeline when she was taken. I wish they they had more of that in there. Mm-hmm. Um, a little more detail. Mm-hmm. And John spoke about paranoia after the crime. Um, which in Morrison's case, yes, he did move away out of the area to literally the other side of the country, but it wasn't until two years afterwards. So was it one of those don't want to move too soon, but then how long are you going to hang around Mm -hmm. while it's still an unsolved case? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to have her car there at the store where he was working. (laughs) That's one of the pieces. If you're annoyed about something, you are not going to you know, set yourself up to be that close to something. Yeah, um, th- it, that's one of the pieces I think that's actually bugging me the yeah. most is the freaking car was right where he was working, like in the woods, yeah. like suspiciously, like pushed into the woods. Like if you're that paranoid, why would the car be there? Oh, you would want to be as far away from okay. that vehicle as possible you would want to be as far away from anything that had to do with her yeah as possible yeah like far away mm-hmm. yep i guess this is one of those um cases i'm going to be submitting a foia request for i kind of wonder to um you know getting back to possible um you know motives or suspects or person of interest um with her being so well known, mm. um, obviously, 
um, a lot of people knew her. Right. And um, she she was a woman's pro golf player. Um, was he stalking her? Was, uh, you know, not necessarily Morrison, but was there, um, you know, another person of interest? Was he stalking her? Was he watching right. her? Was he following her? Um, you know, a, and get back into the 80s with not that many women pro golf players. Did it have anything to do with her career? Was Did he feel threatened by her in some way because she was so well-known, especially in the area, um, with her career? Right. Now, I did see that the LPGA um, Tour um, organization did start back in the 1950s. So as far as female golfers go, um, it does be date back to the 50s as far as them being at professional level. Um, so by the time the 80s came around, she may have actually been a little bit well or more well known mm. amongst not just female golfers, but also male golfers as well. So mm. at that point, Good point. Um, women's golf, it wasn't to the point it is, you know, today or was a couple of years ago, but it was getting up there in popularity. It was on its way. Yeah. Yeah. It was like in the early 90s when women's pro golfing was started really taking off and right and being recognized as a national sport. Yeah. Um, and being as as you know, becoming as popular as men's pro golf. Yep. Um, being recognized more. It wasn't until like the early nineties, somewhere around there. Um so, but Sarah was constantly trying to get it more recognized in her career. Um, so, so maybe with her, you know, um, becoming the pro athlete she was becoming and um, being so well known, mm -hmm. especially in the area. I mean, this is a small area with mm -hmm. one Very. country club, one country club. So obviously everybody knew her, mm -hmm. um, especially if they were connected with the country club. So, I mean, maybe she was a, th a threat to somebody. Somebody felt threatened by her and and what she was trying to accomplish and what she was trying to do, mm -hmm. you know, as far as in her career-wise. Um, was she targeted, right. you know? Was she just um, a victim of, of um, victim of opportunity? Or was she targeted? Right. Um, they, I have not read anything about that, mm -hmm. that they suspect that she knew the person or they suspect that she was um, a person, uh, you know, a victim of opportunity mm -hmm. or if she was targeted. Yeah. Um, had she been threatened, you know, previously before that, received any, you know, threatening letters or, or, she, her being around someone that made her feel very uncomfortable. I, I hadn't read anything about that. Yeah, no, um, I hadn't read so, anything about that either with anything that was out there. So uh, no determination on what their, where their minds are at with that. But with John Philpin's, um, his description, I almost want to say that maybe he was following her, whether it be newspapers or TV or, um anything like that mm. you know maybe he didn't know her personally but knew her because of her lifestyle right 
Um, very interesting. Um, yeah. John Philpin's um, description of his profile of the individual was really detailed, um, but not what I expected. I didn't expect um, the organizational part of it mm. and the... Um, the, um, in the documentary, it did go on to say that after Philbin delivered that profile to the Vermont State Police, new interviewing actually ended up occurring, right? So new people were actually added into the pool based off of that. And some people ended up coming out of the pool as well. But I was, I was, um, I was glad to see that Philbin was pulled into this case um, and his yeah. expertise was, was utilized. Honestly, with this case, I don't know. I don't know. So, so many, you can, you can add so many speculations to it. Like, yeah, you know, where do you start? Why are, um, I'm sure they've dissected her life and, and really couldn't find anything because she sounds like she was an incredible person. And, uh, I, it doesn't seem like she had any enemies, um, and usually that's what they start with is um, people closest to you. Yeah. Dissecting yeah. the victim's life and, and seeing interviewing it and, and looking into the people closest to you. And I don't, they, they don't really talk about a lot of other pe persons of interest um, in specifics. Not in any of the articles. Um that I was able to find on it. But again, if you go back to that documentary, they do make sure an outline um, that, you know, the, the boyfriend, the ex-husband, the best friend were obviously questioned. Um, at first it was sort of a, I'm going to rule you out. And then some were interrogated much more intensely than others. Um, so they at least go through an outline that other suspects other than David Morrison were at least considered interrogated and that sort of thing. Her best friend actually went through hours upon hours of polygraph, repeated the same questions, the same questions. It sounds like one of the, at least one of the members of law enforcement was very uh, convinced that it was him. Um, and he ended up passing the polygraphs or the hours of polygraphs. So I wonder, are they still investigating or are they just, are they convinced that it was Morrison and just, just know that they can't retry him again? They just know but, that they dropped the ball with the evidence. Yeah. I mean, that is a fantastic yet, question. Without that hair, I don't see any positive evidence against him Right. to, um, to say that he was the one that killed her. Yeah. So I mean, unless there was some sort of evidence that was found in her car on her at, you know, where she was found, unless there's any other sort of evidence that wasn't, you know, divulged to the public very well could have been, they do that all the time. Unless there's some other piece of that, you know, DNA or, or some other type of forensic evidence too. Uh, we don't, we don't know if there's anything else that could link him to her or another suspect to her as well. So interesting. Yeah. It also just goes to show you too, that like, so say like, uh, people go and start searching on their own, right. You know, Sarah Hunter, you know, Manchester, Vermont, that sort of thing, unsolved cold case and that sort of thing. 
Um, it just goes to show you too, like the first few articles that are actually out there, it really does call out that, oh, the case was solved. Oh, it was linked with DNA. Oh, it was linked with this and that. And then you have to read a little bit and actually find out, actually, no, they had to drop the charges because of that, you know, mislink with a mishandling of the DNA evidence as well. So unfortunately, the case is still unsolved. Yeah. I mean, that's what I did. I was like, oh, okay. So it was, you know, <laughs> mishandled of evidence. So <laughs> Yeah, he's still guilty, but right. because they dropped the ball and mishandling of evidence, they still have the evidence against him. Mm -hmm. But then I started reading further, like you told me to, mm -hmm. and there really isn't any evidence against him. Yeah, no. So this does remain unsolved, no matter how much they want to convince people that it was Morrison, it does remain unsolved. There's no solid evidence it's not like he pled guilty and took back his plea it's not like they found any physical or, or forensic evidence against him they haven't yeah. um technically and legally and all the above he's not guilty of her murder Correct. Yep. Um, he's may have been a person of interest or a possible suspect there's still no positive evidence against him. And uh, so, yeah, her case still remains unsolved. But I, I was dragged into that when mm -hmm. I first read it. I was like, her case is solved. You're like, why no, are we covering this? Not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, no. Keep reading. Yeah. I'm intrigued, too. <laughs> no, keep reading. So that's um, Vermont State Police has her case. Yes. So, yeah, if you have any information Anything you want, you know, jogs your memory if you want to come forward because you thought that the case was solved when it's technically not mm -hmm. and you have information you want to come forward with, contact Vermont State Police. Um, we'll put the number up because technically this case is unsolved. Yes, it is. Yes. And we'll, of course, have a whole bunch of a slew of resources linked um, in our show notes as well, as well as that short documentary to highly yeah. recommend um, anybody that is that is interested that they actually go and check that out too. It's an hour and a half long um, and he did his research. So I yeah. highly recommend people checking that out. Yeah. yeah. It's weird because it kind of makes you go that everything that you, it's almost like you find a new source and read some information and you kind of veer the other way. Throughout the entire time, I was like, did this guy actually do it or, you know, I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Well, all right. Well, I hope somebody comes forward in um, another New England unsolved case yes. that is over 30 years old. Yes. Almost 40, mm -hmm. 38 years old. Yeah. Too many. Yes. There are too many. Too many old, unsolved cases. I just hope that they still invest are still investigating it, even though they they think that it was this Morrison guy. I hope they they do have this as still an uh, active investigation, mm -hmm. um, an active case. But, yeah. Um. Yeah. All right. If we don't have anything more. Thank you for listening to Invisible Tears.
subscribe, share, uh, tell your friends about us, mm-hmm. um, listen to all our, ep- our other episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll find them wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And we really appreciate all the support you guys give us. Until next time. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Invisible Tears. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to hear all future episodes. Click into our link tree too in the episode description to find and follow us on all our social medias. And it also links to our website, invisible-tears.com, where you can keep current on any events that may be coming up, read more about Jane and the team, and read more about all the Connecticut River Valley unsolved cases. If you want to learn more about my wellness practice, Guided Path Wellness, head to guidedpathwellness.org. There you can read more about me and my certifications, more about the Reiki and coaching services I offer both in person and remote, and read all about my products for sale that I make through the practice. Feel free to utilize the contact us section on the website with any questions or utilize that free 15-minute consultation booking button if you have any questions about what might work for you. Evil may exist in this world, but we will not let it win. See you next episode.